I'm going to pray, and then we'll get cracking. We've got a bit of a marathon today, I should warn you, but uh, the first day is the hardest. It's, it's much easier after this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for the glory of your creation, the beauty of this place, the wonder of your mercies that are new every morning. We praise you that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We praise you that you're a God of justice and mercy. And we pray that as we study your word this morning, you would give us insight, wonder, repentance, and joy. For your glory's sake. Amen. So the first talk, Anarchy without monarchy. And what I'm going to try and do is cover the whole of the book of Judges in less than an hour. Um, It's possible. The wheels touch down at Heathrow, and that is a relief in itself for those of a more nervous disposition. And after taxiing to the gate, the vast plane finally comes to a halt. The seatbelt sign is extinguished. The place is bedlam. But for our subject, the traumas are just beginning. The crowds, of course, are funneled from a hundred different aircraft, from a hundred different airports, towards the bottleneck of passport control. Most passengers are bleary-eyed, frazzled, and spaced but not our subject. She is wide awake, anxious, fearful. She doesn't speak much English. She doesn't know where to go. She doesn't have friends to guide her. She is alone, completely alone. More alone than she's ever felt in her life. But there was no choice. There was no alternative. She simply had to escape. There was nothing left behind for her. She scrimped and saved the money to, uh, to make her way over months. She had to buy a return because they wouldn't let her buy a single. Yasmin back home had rehearsed the lines with her before her arrival. They rehearsed over and over, but it was just phonetic. She didn't really understand the words she was saying She just hoped that it would sound okay. She queued where everybody else was queuing. She gets to the front, and then the man quietly explains to her that she's in the wrong queue. But, of course, she doesn't understand. She doesn't have an EU passport, but she doesn't really know what he's talking about. She looks blank and shrugs. He points her to another section, and so she starts queuing again. Eventually, she gets to the front. She hands over her passport and says... I, Somalia, help, please, asylum, seek. And so it begins. Because of my work with Langham Partnership, I find myself coming through Heathrow uh, quite often. And I always have this sense of relieved homecoming, even if my time away has been positive, which it nearly always has been. But it's home. I'm safe. But there are signs everywhere as you're walking through, you know, from those long walkways from uh, the planes to passport control. There are signs everywhere instructing would-be asylum seekers what to do. And I always find myself trying to imagine what that must be like. It's a massive issue 
people migrating all around the world for all kinds of different reasons. Uh, Jeremy Mayer will be doing a seminar looking at one related aspect of this on Tuesday, the issue of human trafficking. But let's get something of the contemporary picture uh, uh, of the bigger scene. This is from 2010, the UNHCR statistics uh, about uh, people and migration around the world. And in 2010, globally, almost 45 million people suffer in forced displacement, of whom 15 million are refugees to other countries. 27.5 million are what's called internally displaced. In other words, they're in their home country, but they've had to move away from where they, where they lived. And about a million people around the world are pending asylum seekers. Now, where have they come from? Well, they've come from, I guess, some of the places you might expect. Uh, Three million from Afghanistan, 1.7 million from Iraq, 0.7 million from Somalia. And where do they end up? Well, the awful thing is that many of them end up in other countries that are themselves problematic. So the largest refugee group by far is in Pakistan. Two million people are refugees in Pakistan. One million are in Iran and Syria each, although perhaps the Syrian situation has changed now. The UK is only 10th on the list with a quarter of a million refugees. Women and children account for over half of the total. Now, of course, this is nothing new. It has happened for centuries, but the statistics are terrifying. In 1970, there were an estimated 2.5 million Within 20 years, it was up to 27.4 million. As one UNHCR official said in uh, the 90s, refugees are one of the growth industries of the 90s. And we could say that's true of the 2000s as well. Which is why it is essential to be reminded that God is the God of the refugee. And in fact, in Christ, our God was a refugee at his birth. We must never forget that as we study these mornings. Don't forget that when you hear politicians and pundits speaking of immigration policy. Our God in Christ was a refugee. The book of Ruth begins like this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, of course, that couldn't be more relevant today, could it? Uh, because it's not just about refugees seeking a better life somewhere else, even just a livable life somewhere else. It, this is about hungry people seeking food. It is not economic migration. It is survival migration, which is precisely what's going on in East Africa. Ten million people today face the worst drought for 50 years. The reasons why individuals flee are complex. But when you have whole populations fleeing, then you really know something's up, don't you? You really know things are bad. When whole towns and cities move en masse. But why did Elimelech leave Bethlehem? It might seem obvious from these 
uh, verses, hunger. That's why he left. But it's more complicated than that. Because actually there are deeper reasons for this famine. The clue is in the first sentence of Ruth. What is the period? It is when the judges ruled. When the judges ruled. And the location, well, they're in the land, but there is famine in the land. Well, to understand what that means, we need to spend the whole of this morning's session in the book of Judges. Because the book of Judges helps us to understand what it was really like. Um, Every other morning is going to be a gentle stroll through Ruth. This morning is going to be a marathon through a whole book, but I do think that the effort will bear fruit if you stick with it. Uh, Perhaps someone could keep an eye on that door to keep the air coming in, because um, I think that would be good. Um, And other sort of outlets would be good as well. Um, You know, I'd hate to see people snoozing on my watch. Because, of course, you got very good sleep last night, and it's fine. Anyway, I would say you cannot understand Ruth without judges. It's as simple as that, and that's why it's really important we spend time doing this. Now, we're not told exactly the dates for Ruth, um, but the whole of the judges' period lasted um, about uh, 200 years or so, and this table you'll find on the resources booklet on page 2, And it might be worth just having page two and three open for this morning's session because they help us with judges. Uh, The whole period was about 200 years from 1200 to 1000 BC or thereabouts. And I want to focus on, um, in the overview of judges, the start and the finish. Partly because the middle bit, the main section which I've called the exploits of the 12 heroes. You know most of that, I'm sure. It's the great sort of Sunday school stories of the judges. I'm just going to pick out a couple um, and and just focus on the bookends, if you like, because they will help us understand what was significant about these judges. So please have judges open in front of you, and we're going to start at the beginning, which is always a good idea, and uh, go from there. Now, hopefully you picked up from the reading... Um, that it began with Joshua's death and the period of the judges that follows immediately after. We are handing straight over from the end of the book of Joshua. And the thing is, the key issue in the book of Joshua is the land. That is what the book of Joshua is about, the land. Um, And uh, which parts, who gets what, and... um, how God leads the people into this land that he has promised. He promised to create a people living under his rule, living in his place. Well, that was what Abraham was promised. In uh, the rest of the, the Pentateuch, all the way up to Deuteronomy, basically you find God's people being formed and being told what his rule was. By the end of Deuteronomy, the one thing that's missing is the land, the place that he, they would live in. And Moses preaches his final sermons before dying at the end of Deuteronomy, before the people enter. Joshua leads the people into the land, and it's about the conquest. The interesting thing is that Joshua presents rather a rosy-tinted view of how easy it was. It all seemed plain sailing and sorted. And by the time you get to the end, uh, you begin Judges, and you find that, well, things are not quite as good as they'd hoped. And uh, so often in the Bible, we're presented both with the ideal 
of the conquest in the book of Joshua and the reality of the conquest in the book of Judges. Now, just a little commercial break here. I am well aware that the whole morality of the conquest of the land and the killing of the Canaanites and all of this stuff is very difficult. And I'm not going to touch it upon it at all, but I will recommend Chris Wright's book, The God I Don't Understand. It's based on four sermons he gave at All Souls a few years ago, and one of them was on uh, the, um, the so-called genocide of the Canaanites. What on earth was God doing giving this land that was lived in by other people? Um, we've got a bookstall arriving on Tuesday. That will be on the bookstall. You can get copies of it there. I really recommend. It's the second section of four, and it's really, really helpful. But uh, chapter 1, verse 1, it starts with the death of Joshua, and the tribes are united at first. Now, our ears should prick up in verse uh, 1 and 2 because... The Lord answers, Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. Now, Judah is the tribe of Elimelech. So we should suddenly think, hang on, what's going on here? So it would be great over the next day or two if you could read through the whole of Ruth and just pick up some of these resonances. I'm going to pick out some as we go through in Judges. But for a start, Judah is the tribe of Elimelech. So notice that. And they're given a God-given job in the land that Yahweh, the God of the covenant, has given them. Now, by the end of chapter 1, uh, verse 19 onwards, you find that actually they didn't finish the job off. There were pockets of resistance. Um, so you look at verse uh, uh, 20. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove it from the, from the three sons of Anak. The Benjamites, however, failed to dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. Jebusites, Jebus, Jerusalem. Listen out for that. They didn't quite finish it. In what will become David's capital... There was um, a mixture, a half-completed conquest. And then as the chapter goes on, you find all kinds of other problems. Verses 27 to 33, the Canaanites are all over the place. Uh, Manasseh, Ephraim, and Naphtali each have their failures. And then verse 34, the Amorites can find the Danites in their area. Remember that, we're going to come back to the Danites as well. So the Danites are kept in their territory. If you look on the back, you'll find a nice, lovely map. And um, I'm going to refer to one or two bits a bit later, but it's definitely worth vegging up on that map. And when I started doing my Old Testament courses at university, the first thing my tutor said is, learn a map of Israel, because you will really miss some of the significance of different things if you don't know all these different places. So I really recommend trying to get your brain around where all the tribes are and where these main towns are. Okay. Now, all of these problems you find in Judges 1 have their consequences all through this period. And anyone who knows anything about wars and invasions, of course, knows that nothing ever goes according to plan. Uh, just as that great philosopher of war, Donald Rumsfeld, said, stuff happens, or, or words to that effect. So in, a, well, in one sense, the chaos of Judges 1 
could be just a typical experience of war. You have your tactics and your strategies, but the reality is never quite what it was hoped. And what we find is that far from being a united nation throughout this period, Israel is basically like a sort of loose confederation of tribal families. That's all. They're never really bound together. But actually, from their perspective, it's one thing to say that their conquest was defective, but actually God gives his own perspective on it. There is a divine perspective. And actually, the problem was not so much that they were concerned uh, they did a bad job, is that actually they were not wholehearted in their dependence on God. And in the end, that was the problem. So chapter 2 captures the whole problem, uh, the problem for the whole 200 years. This is what it was like. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give your forefathers. I said, I'll never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you've disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now, therefore, I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. Do you see? God is saying, I'm not going to give you a full conquest. Now, they will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare. So what's the reminder The reminder is that God brought them out of Egypt and he gave them this land, the promised land. It was a covenant that God would not break. I said I would give you this land so you can trust him. And what's the instruction? Well, don't make a covenant with locals and break down uh, and make sure you break down those pagan altars. But the instruction was disobeyed. And what's the outcome? Well, God will leave their opposition as a consequence of their failure to depend on him and as a judgment, a punishment. So actually, do you see that the difficulties of the judges period, the foreign enemies, the thorns, and the foreign gods like Baal and Ashtoreth and Dagon, the snares, are part of the consequences of failing to trust and obey God. That's why this has happened. And this consequence is very similar to Romans chapter 1. Do you remember how in Romans chapter 1, God hands his people over to the consequences of their sin? It's, 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 you know, God judges by not doing something. He says, okay, I'll hand you over to it. And that is a crucial lesson, you see. God is the Lord of his universe, his world, and his people. He is in control. And when people do not trust him, why should they expect him to serve them? Now, that first generation to enter the land with Joshua did okay. But it's interesting, you remember the end of Joshua, he still has to give his famous speech, doesn't he? About, you know, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we're going to do this. It's interesting, isn't it? After all they've been through and all they've seen God do, he still has to say, choose But they did okay in that first generation. But what you find next is a pattern that's established through the whole of the middle section of Judges. And the pattern, and you can see this um, on page two of the resources booklet, you find people sin, verse 11 and 12. They did evil. And it's very interesting. Doing evil in the eyes of the Lord is a little phrase that comes up in one and two kings and Uh, here, and basically it is shorthand for saying they worshipped other gods. 
That's what it means. It's not just generic evil, although generic evil comes out of it. Doing evil in the eyes of the Lord was to do the worst thing you can possibly do, which is to reject him. And God's reaction is to be angry. Well, of course he is. And his response is, well, he is holy, so he must do something about it. And he does that by deserting them. But the people cry eventually. They've had enough. You know, they say, right, we've learned this lesson. They cry to God, and God does hear them because he is merciful, and that's what he's like. And so what does he do? He sends a judge, a ruler, who will lead his people and bring them security for a time. And then after a time, the judge dies, and people forget history. I think it was someone once said that the only lesson we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. And Israel's sin comes back sometimes even worse. It's just skin-deep repentance. And that pattern is perfectly echoed in Othniel. Uh, We know very little about him except he was the first judge. And from chapter 3, 7 to 11, you can see in sort of microcosm his whole life you know, <laughs> summarized in just five or six verses. Um, and, and there he is. And basically, it exactly echoes what has happened uh, through the whole period. So the conquest of the land is incomplete. The people's devotion to Yahweh is inconsistent. And these two failings are going to dog them for centuries. Remember how Joshua had to call on his people to choose? Well, they have to choose in every generation. So what we have here is a far cry from the sort of idealized, you know, um, rosy-tinted view of the book of Joshua, where everything seemed to be sorted. Well, here's a bit to remember when we come to Ruth tomorrow. Look at Judges 3 and verse 4. talking about these other groups. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands which he had given their forefathers through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. Remember that. Of course, there's one nation not mentioned in that little list. Their next-door neighbors, Moab. And we're going to think a lot about Moab, particularly tomorrow. Uh, Two judges in this period will deal with Moab. I put them in the little box there. Ehud, uh, remember Ehud with the fat king Eglon and all that jolly stuff? (laughs) Lovely. And uh, Jephthah, who's unable to travel through Moab. These two have to deal with the Moabites. We're going to deal with the Moabites tomorrow. But um, we come to the main section of of Judges, which I'm going to scoot through fast. And uh, you've got an outline, which I've done of the whole thing on page three. You probably need a magnifying glass for this. Um, But um, basically, that summarizes the whole of the middle period of a middle section of Judges and shows how the different judges in their different ways conform to this pattern we saw from chapter 2. And it's a pretty depressing thing when you look at it and you think, this cycle happened 12 times. 
The only thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. A few years ago, there was a, a, an ad campaign for Madame Tussauds on the tube. I don't know whether you saw it. It had a huge range of, of different names, you know, Muhammad Ali to Eric Cantona to Princess Diana, Winston Churchill. And this was the ad's caption. It said, hero worship services daily. Well, I can't remember whether or not the uh, boxer Chris Eubank was included in the campaign. I guess he might have expected to be included in the campaign. Uh, but he famously said this, I have no vices. I am a hero. Go and look it up in the dictionary and you'll find a picture of me. <laughs> Which pretty much reveals his particular vice there and then. It's said you should never meet your heroes because you'll only be disappointed. And that's certainly the case with the so-called heroes, the judges. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. They're familiar but hopefully you'll see why I put hero in inverted commas. These are not ideals of holiness and faithfulness. Some are total rogues. In fact, many of these stories should be X-rated. Worse, we see that with one or two exceptions, each generation is worse than its predecessor. So it's not so much a cycle as a downward spiral. It's a sort of vortex, each getting progressively worse. It is utterly depressing. And you can see this particularly when you, if you ever sort of study through this. You see uh, on, on the, um, the overview um, the number of years that the people uh, enjoy peace either um, it declines or disappears altogether. So by the time you get to the bottom list you find with Samson, he never actually defeated the Philistines at all. They were still in charge. Um, now, just a little word on this uh, word judge, because um, they, were not, they were not to think of sort of, you know, British judges in their ermine and wigs and everything else. Um, they, are, they are judicial. They do hold courts, if you like, but they're also leaders. They're clan and military leaders. They're designed uh, to lead the people in times of war and to deliver them and then lead and judge the affairs of that people for the rest of their lives. So they exercise a national uh, influence despite fragmentation, um, but they're not, um, they're not kings and uh, they are not necessarily as secure as you might hope or certainly they would I'm just going to look at two. Let's look at Gideon, he of the fleece. I've called him the famous, uh, the, the faithless farmer. He is not quite the model of faith, you might think. Yes, he is commended in Hebrews chapter 11, and that is important. But have a look at chapter 6, verse 14. The Lord turned to him, chapter 6, verse 14, and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. 
Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait and give you uh, until you return. Now, basically, God has told him, do this, I'm giving you the Midianites. And, and Gideon says, really? You sure? How can I know? I mean, I'm just pathetic. I'm a puny little guy. I'm from the puniest little tribe. I can't do this. Lord, give me a sign. So God graciously does. And then he says, but, but you know, how can I be really sure? Uh, this time have the dew on the fleece and not the ground rather than the other way around and blah, 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 blah. And God graciously does it. And he asks a third time. How many times does he need? Now, I might understand it. I might relate to it. I'm sure you can too. But that's not the point. God is very gracious to him, but this is not a model for faith, um, uh, trusting people, is it? This is a sign of his unbelief, not his trust. He needs propping up. But God is very gracious to him and gives him what he asks. But just because you read something in the Bible doesn't mean to say it's there for us to imitate. I hope you've learned that lesson by now. Otherwise, as we come to one or two other things in Judges, you'll be in a bit of a pickle. In chapter 6, he obeys, but he does it at night, and that's deemed cowardly. And then you have in chapter 7 all the business of, of getting the 300 men and all the rest, but he still calls for reserves. Now, things get a bit uh, complicated with some tribal infighting in Israel. Then, then Gideon does do, seem to do the right things. Chapter 8, verse 22. Have a look at that. The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you've saved us out of the hand of Midian. Verse 23. His answer is spot on. I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. I'm not your king. God is. He's absolutely on the money there, isn't he? And then he completely botches the job by collecting the people's jewelry to make an ephod. Now, that was a sort of priestly and holy garment uh, that various others like King David wore. But Gideon's ephod was different. It was worshipped. And thus, the thing that he had made had become a word snare. Now, the religion of the, the, the people in the land, God said they, this would become a snare to them. And now you have a judge making his own snare for the people. But things get worse. Things get worse because Gideon dies, and after he dies, his son, by a prostitute, a chap called Abimelech, comes along to the scene, and he is an absolute disaster. Despite what his father had said, neither I nor my son will rule. Remember that bit? Abimelech comes along and declares himself king. All right? And he acts in a way completely opposite to how a judge should act. And God does not send a judge during the three years of Abimelech's reign. That's part of his judgment. But there's one little twist in this episode that is very sad. What does Abimelech mean? Abimelech means my father, the king. Now, what is Gideon doing calling his son my father, the king, when he has said, I'm not going to be my, your king and nor will my son? Is this a little twist? Is this a little 
knocking at the knees at the last minute, thinking, oh, well, maybe it's quite a good idea after all. Perhaps you can see where Abimelech got the idea from, his own name. Oh, yes, the king. Yeah, that'll be me then. If he's dead, I'm the king now. Do you see? Not quite the great leader we would hope for. So perhaps he didn't quite, wasn't quite so sure of his resolve after all. My father the king. That's not what you call your son if you are rejecting the idea of monarchy because God is king. Do you see? Okay, let's move on to Samson. I called the self-indulgent maverick. He is hardly worth the title of judge, to be fair. He's a conceited, rash, self-centered sex maniac which makes him the perfect metaphor for the state of Israel. And I put a little table on your sheets there. Set apart from birth, just as Israel was set apart as holy. He chases after foreign women, just after, as Israel chases after foreign gods. He's overcome by the Philistines, as are the Israelites. He has this penchant for making pointless riddles and then being unable to keep a secret if he is at the wiles and mercy of a beautiful Philistine girl. And uh, that is a foretaste of what will happen with Delilah, with far more disastrous effects. In chapter 15, we find that he doesn't overcome the Philistines. In chapter 16, he gives in to Delilah. And there's a sort of uh, old master painting showing the scene and reveals his strength. And then chapter 16, he doesn't destroy the Philistines, but in his death, he kills a few. The awful epitaph is that you could say, in a sense, that he achieved more in his death than he did in his life. One has to wonder, is Samson really the best Israel has to offer at this stage? Now, the extraordinary thing about the whole period is that God allows it to go on for so long. We've seen 200 years. The cycle happens 12 times. And the surprise, of course, is not that the people keep failing... The surprise is that God keeps having mercy again and again. Don't you think after a while he'd get bored of this whole thing and wash his hands of them? The question remains at the end of Judges, what is the future for God's purposes? What is the future for the covenant? It cannot surely go on like this. And so begins the epilogue. Uh, Like the book of Ruth, we're now in an unspecified time during this period. It's common, isn't it, for journalists who are reporting from a disaster or a war zone to give at least two angles for the story. There's the big picture, the big names, the organizations, the armies, the corporations, whatever. But at the same time, they know we easily get compassion fatigue or we just get fed up and bored and move and switch over. You you need to give the so-called human interest story. The big picture needs grounding in an individual or family's life. Well, there's a sense in which Judges, the last four chapters of Judges are designed to do just that. A human face to the hardships of this time. And this is grim. And I would suggest these have to be the most appalling chapters in the Bible. Utterly, utterly gruesome. I don't think you will find Sunday schools teaching these chapters to kids. They'll stop at Samson and quickly move to the New Testament, scuttling along at all speed, But I suppose the life of the big picture here must have been a bit like living in Afghanistan or Somalia today. Very tough. So what do we find? Well, 
It's chaos that cries out for something better. And the first type of chaos I call religious chaos, um, or why Dan went north. Well, you'll see what I mean in a moment. Remember, Dan was stuck in being, dealing with those uh, pesky uh, locals earlier. Well, we're going to sort out and work out what goes on after that. But we suddenly zoom in, right in, on the human interest story of one bloke called Micah. Micah, too, has rather an interesting name. It's an abbreviation for Micaiah, and Micaiah means who is like Yahweh. Who is like God? It's like a psalm or, or Job. It's a name of devotion. There's none like Yahweh. That's what his name means. And to begin with, it seems that he's well-named, um, but uh, not for long. These are clearly lawless times. In his area, Ephraim, which is the north, the family suffered a burglary. I guess something has happened in London in recent days. 1,100 shekels of silver. He's managed to get it back. History doesn't relate how. And his mother's response looks very good in verse 2. May Yahweh bless you. But then what? Verse 3, they make an idol to Yahweh. And then he thinks, okay, well, these are dangerous times. I better, you know, get my own priest. So he hires a Levite and pays for him to be his own guy. And then verse 13 is uh, rank paganism. Look at verse 13. Now I know that Yahweh will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. Paganism is basically where you coerce or you twist the arm of different gods to do what you want. He's got his own priest in his backyard. All will go well with me. This is DIY religion in an age where it's dog-eat-dog and every man for himself. I mean, you know, travel was dangerous. There were bandits around everywhere, and and lawlessness was rife. You can understand not wanting to go to the shrine at Shiloh. It's too dangerous to travel. Much easier if I have my own priest at home, don't you think? But God had forbidden DIY religion. You can understand it, though. I mean, can you imagine? Uh, Some people made it to the prayer gathering on Tuesday night during the riots, but many people stayed at home, and you can understand that. Imagine if this was going on all the time. Would you come to church? Or you might get arrested, as some believers in different parts of the world find, for going to church. It's so much easier to DIY religion at home, don't you think? Oh, I can understand Micah, but God has said don't. Now, to begin with, this seems like a private story, but suddenly, by the time you get to chapter 18, it explodes into something huge. The Danites, chapter 18, verse 1, they are down in the south, and they want a better place. And it's no surprise, because of the Amorites stuck there, there's Dan... And they're looking around Zora, and they think, no, this is terrible. There are too many Amorites around. We're going to find somewhere else. So they zoom all the way up to the north. And on the map, it's actually now called Dan. It used to be called Laish, and it's changed its name to Dan because that's where they settled. So that's why I've called this bit, why Dan went north. They thought the grass was greener up there, less baddies, much easier, let's go. They go up there, and they want their own religious security. So what do they do? They steal Micah's idols and his priest. They say, oh, he's onto something here. I'll, yeah, we'll have a bit of that. So they nick the guy's religion uh, stuff and take it, and uh, they think, this is, we're, we're set up. This is all we need. And how little do they know 
of God. They've learned nothing from Israel's history. They have a victory of sorts by the end of chapter 18, but it's clear from the way the narrator tells it that God wasn't in it. The people are called a peaceful and unsuspecting people. In other words, easy prey. What hope do they have now? The seeds are sown for the future. This is where the rot sets in for the division of the people after King Solomon, having their own religion and worship styles in the north. And why was the northern kingdom um, destroyed by Assyria several centuries later? Because of their idolatry. The seeds are sown here when Dan steals this guy's idol. And then there is moral and civil chaos. Our focus is still on an individual, another one though. This time it's a Levite in chapter 19. We're not given his name. A Levite was a temple priest or a a tabernacle priest. And in 19 verse 1 we find that he lives in Ephraim, which is in the north as well. And he takes a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah in the south. Okay, north and south, but our ears perk up Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Remember that. Some very weird stuff. What's he doing with the concubine? Not answered. Then you have this bizarre story of the father of this girl trying to find excuses to keep the Levite to stay with him and not uh, desert this woman after she's been unfaithful. It's all very strange, all very unsettling. But remember, Old Testament narrative never tells us what we're to make of things necessarily, or doesn't always tell us, it just tells us what happened. We're not spoon-fed with verdicts, but we are to use the Bible to interpret the Bible. We're meant to work it out for ourselves, and that's vital because of what happens next. Eventually, the Levite sets off with his concubine. They decide um, that uh, it's too dangerous to go to Jebus, to Jerusalem, and so they make a fateful decision. Chapter 19, verse 12. We won't go to an alien city whose people are not Israelites. We'll go to Gibeah. Come, let's try to reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. It's a fateful decision because it seems that the people of Gibeah do not have a gift for hospitality. They end up having to rely on a generous old man, another guy from Ephraim, who happened to be living there. And then, chapter 19, verse 22, the local citizens come out and demand that the visiting Levite be brought out to be raped. It is very shocking. The text gives us absolutely no preparation for it. You suddenly read it and you go, what? There's been one precedent of this, of a sort, in Genesis 18 in a town called Sodom. And here, this seems to be happening again. But this is God's covenant people doing this. Uh, It should be worth being aware that male rape in the ancient world was a known practice used by conquering armies on their defeated enemies. It still goes on today in places like Darfur and Sudan. It is not sexual as much as it is a power play. It is designed to utterly humiliate your victim. And it's not what you expect God's covenant people to be doing to each other. 
let alone to anybody else. It is utterly sickening. Uh, then the story gets, just sort of spirals out of control. It gets worse. The old man suggests, oh, no, no, don't take him. Take my daughter. And take, take this man's concubine. Rape them. And the rape of the Levite's concubine is so violent and persistent that she's killed. This is an extreme example of how perilous the lives of women in that particular period were. I've put a table um, uh, in the resources pages on page two, the experience of women in Judges. If you look through that, you see with one exception only, that of Deborah, life could be utterly terrifying. Remember that when we come to Ruth. Remember how vulnerable she was at so many points. Then the Levite reacts very strangely indeed. In order to let the whole nation know what's happened, he cuts her corpse into 12 bits, one for each tribe, and distributes them around the country in a shocking and horrific way. This is worthy of nothing less than an 18. It's repellent at every point. Nobody comes out looking good. One thing it does do, though, is is to galvanize this disunited nation into action. The whole people march on Benjamin. They say, this is utterly appalling. This shouldn't go on. They're appalled by it. They demand the guilty to be sent out of Benjamin. They refuse, and so there's civil war. By the end of chapter 21, there is this rather uneasy truce and tribal unity although the Benjamites have used a very dubious tactic to get wives for themselves. That, again, is another example of how awful it was for women in that time. The question is, how on earth can a nation that behaves like this survive? I mean, we just looked at two individuals and the surrounding consequences of their actions. Uh, Micah and this Levite were presumably meant to see them as sort of representative for this whole period. And then the book ends. How does Judges set the scene for Ruth? What are we to make of all this? We're not meant to approve of their behavior. I hope, you know, Judges uh, 17 to 21 proves once and for all that Old Testament narrative includes things that we're not meant to imitate. I hope you got that point. What are we to make of this? Well, the clues are there. The book of Ruth is the biggest clue of what to make of all this, as we'll see tomorrow as we begin in there. That's the biggest clue of what God's up to. But there is also a big hint in the, pro, in the epilogue, and I know you know it. There's a clear verdict. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. You have it four times. There it is in a nutshell. Anarchy in Israel because there's no monarchy. Now, it's ambiguous, as Gideon rightfully pointed out, because, you know, not only do they lack a human king, but actually they failed to live under God as their king. 
God is their king. He's on the throne, but do they follow? The writer of Judges is clearly looking ahead to the great glory days of the Israelite monarchy under great David and Solomon, a nation united for the first time since Joshua, secure from their enemies. As chapter uh, chapter 7 of 2 Samuel would describe it, they had rest in the land from their enemies. We'll come to that on another day. You can see why that was such a relief after the trauma of the Judges period, can't you? But there are lots of little resonances going on here. I wonder if you pick them up. The Levite and the concubine are traveling from her hometown, Bethlehem in Judah, to Ephraim in the north. Who would also come from Bethlehem? David. The Levite is scared of going to Jebus or Jerusalem. Who would make Jebus his capital? David. What was the threat will become the center of power. The Levite and the concubine were terrorized by the people of Gibeah, who were from the tribe of Benjamin. Who would also come from the tribe of Benjamin? Saul. And Saul would terrorize a Bethlehemite, David. Those who look back on the period of the judges from the period of David would have seen all the resonances there. And of course, the book of Ruth will start and end in Bethlehem. But it is an ambiguous legacy. You see, the question is, will monarchy really help? I mean, Gideon thought that it was a bad idea, and he refused it, rightly, as we saw, and yet he calls his son, my father, the king. Abimelech's behavior proves him right that it was a bad idea. Who says that actually, you know, the son of a good king will be good, or even the son of a bad king will be good? Who's to say that the hereditary principle is a good one? And as we'll see, the leaders either manage to reform a nation or to reflect its morality. Happens every generation. It'll reform a nation or reflect a nation. And you see that all the way through kings, particularly. So the Old Testament has a very uneasy relationship with the idea of monarchy. It's clearly part of God's purposes, but it is flawed, it seems, because human nature is flawed. Is having a king really such a good idea? The interesting thing is, from the Old Testament, it's actually quite hard to answer that question. And it is a nation under judgment. What did God say would happen to a people who went after other gods? Well, Moses warned the people in Deuteronomy... Deuteronomy 28, of the challenges that they would face. Because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity, therefore in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and dire poverty, you will serve the enemies the Lord sends against you. Why is there famine in the land? Could it be because the people rebelled? interesting. The Old Covenant is very agricultural. Have you noticed that before? It's about living in the land, trusting in the God who is the Lord of the land to bring rain and sun, food and water. 
that if you don't, there'll be famine. And yet, in spite of all of this, God raises up Ruth. We can see something of why there was a famine in the land. And this was part of the covenant deal with God, wasn't it? The people had persistently, deliberately, flagrantly disobeyed him. But we can also see why Elimelech and Naomi, Marlon and Kilion flee to Moab. You can understand why, can't you? Even if we're not meant to approve of that. And I'm not sure we are meant to approve of them going. We'll think more about that tomorrow. But you see, it wasn't just the famine. It was the lawlessness, the anarchy, the incessant insurgencies from enemies, not to mention the civil war in Israel and the moral decline and chaos. How on earth is godliness possible in a failed state? How can you be godly in a failed state? How can you survive in a failed state? How could you be godly living on the streets of Mogadishu? We're going to think about that in the morning. But as I finish, what about us? Well, Judges has been realistic about the depths of our sin, hasn't it? We are rebels against God. We hardly need reminding of that after what we've whistled through. Spiteful, selfish, promiscuous, violent, aggressive, thoughtless, spineless, fearful, unfaithful. You name it, we've seen it in Judges. And yet, despite it all, human beings are loved by God. Isn't that amazing? We're loved by God. (laughs) Why else would he be interested in human affairs? Why else persist? Twelve cycles of the same thing. He sticked with it. I'd have given up after number one, wouldn't you? How many times... Does someone have to break your trust before you stop trusting them? Twelve times. Or as Jesus says, seven times seven times seventy times seventy-seven. In other words, stop trying to work it out. Because if you did, we'd be stuffed, wouldn't we? Why would else he bother about their petty squabbles and gross injustices? Why else would he long to save, prosper, and enjoy being them? Why else raise up a judge if he didn't love them, despite it all? But judges, even in its many dark hours, we see God faithful to his promises. Isn't that amazing? Thirdly, God is still in control, even in a war zone. I've never been through a war zone. Perhaps some of you have. I've lived in places where things are unpredictable, certainly. And things are really, you know, sometimes do your head in. And things seem out of control. I would guess in a war zone, you know, nobody knows what's going on, really. But God's in control, even in a war zone. It's an astonishing thought. It doesn't look like it. God can consistently raise up a deliverer where he needs to. 
He will raise up some of the most extraordinary characters in the Bible. I mean, when I said that these guys were not heroes, they're just flawed human beings. That's the whole point. God can use flawed human beings. So that is why these guys end up in Hebrews 11, in the heroes of faith, because it's not their heroism and their goodness that gets them there. It's that their faith in God gets them there. That's what makes the difference. God uses the most extraordinary people, which is just as well, because otherwise he wouldn't use you and me. He's in control, even in a war zone, and he will raise up some of the most extraordinary and unlikely people you would ever imagine. He will raise up a pagan convert, Moabites, to be one of the most inspiring, shaming, challenging people in all Scripture. There was no one like Ruth. Hers is a very private human interest story. It's a far cry, though, from other individuals we've seen in Judges. How different Boaz is from Micah and that Levite. As we look at this story, keep comparing in your mind Boaz and Micah and the Levite. And you'll see what glittering gold Boaz was in this dark, dark time. God can raise up people even in a war zone and God still has his purposes. He will raise up a king. Just look with me at the end of Judges. Chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. That's the problem. No king. Just turn over a few pages and look at the very last word of the book of Ruth. David. It's the last word in the Hebrew as well. David. Could it be that as Naomi and Ruth set out on their journey from Moab, something extraordinary is going to happen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us patience, the ability to get through this big book in a short time, we pray that you would help us to understand more of ourselves and more of you and your purposes. For your glory's sake. Amen.